And thanks, Ryan. Ryan's one of our home group leaders. Grateful for uh, Ryan and Andy opening up their home every week and uh, to minister. GCF exists to glorify God. That's what you saw as you walked in on the wall. We do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And when we think about gospel-centered community, we, uh, I think I'm always reminded that though God saves us individually, he doesn't leave us just as individuals to walk around and go through this life on our own. He saves us individually, but by his kind and sweet grace, he puts us with other redeemed individuals, and we form a body. It's called the, the local church, the, the company of the redeemed, where we get to enjoy something like this, the blessing and the privilege of being able to gather together to worship God. And so we don't take mornings like this for granted, even if we do sing a few less songs. That's okay. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's a joy to really be uh, with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark. So we continue in our series here, Mark chapter 11, and I'll be reading the last part of Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. The words will be up on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 27. If you're able to, would you stand as I read God's word? Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, our sacrifice, our substitute, our high priest, our atonement. Speak to us this morning, Father. Speak to us about this Jesus. Through your word and by your spirit, I pray. And be pleased to give us ears that are eager to listen, and hearts that are ready to obey. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently traveled back to see my dad for a few days in Canada, which means that I needed to bring and carry my passport because shortly after my brother picked me up from the airport in Detroit, Michigan, we drove up to the Canadian border and to the Canadian border agent. And then the questioning began. Where do you live? Where are you going? Do you know the person sitting next to you? What's the purpose of your visit? How long are you gonna be in Canada? A whole series of questions like that. My favorite question though, and sometimes it's not always asked, but for whatever reason, this question was asked of me on this visit. Are you currently carrying more than $10,000 cash on your person? 
And just once, I'd like to say yes. <laughs> That's the reason for my smile. It's kind of a bucket list thing. I have $5,000 in this pocket, and $5,000 in this pocket, I'm going to just strike this off the bucket list. But that's not a time to get cute with border agents. But crossing through a border like that it was a really good reminder that there is one person in charge. There's one person in authority in the booth, and then everybody else in the car is not. There's one who is asking the questions, and then there's me who is answering the questions asked. The border guard, by virtue of his job, his badge, his gun, he has all the authority he needs to let me pass through, to tell me to wait, or to turn me away. Authority is important. And, of course, when passing through an international border, we're, we're thankful for people who wield this kind of authority well and wisely because it keeps us safe and secure. Authority is important, and it's important because we exist as people under authority. Every last one of us, every last one of us is under some kind of authority, whether a boss, a parent, a teacher, a coach, the government, the law. Perhaps it is that the biggest authority in your life this morning is, in fact, somebody else's expectations of you, of who they think you should be. It may simply be the case that you are the most important authority in your life because nobody talks to you more than you do. We all live under authority, and most importantly, we live and breathe and move and exist under God's authority. And yet that, that's been the problem ever since Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, we human beings resist his divine authority. In fact, we declare ourselves to be autonomous. We want to be our own God and ruler. We want just to call the shots. And so in our commitment to this autonomy and independence, this self-rule, self-law, we actually resist people who we think are interfering with our right to determine for ourselves who we are and who we should be. And we can so easily resist Jesus himself. Now, in our saner moments, we get this. We understand that. We know, in fact, that we need help. So, so we can say we're, we're grateful for a Messiah who will reconcile us to a holy God. We're, we're grateful for a Savior who, who took our sins upon the cross and died and was raised again for our justification so we might say, Jesus, I'm thankful for your finished work on the cross. I'm thankful that you bore the very wrath of God for me that I deserve. I'm thankful that you've given me eternal life. I'm going to praise you forever. I'm going to sing about this forever. And we might. The breakdown comes when that Jesus actually tells us how to live. When that Jesus actually speaks with divine authority into our lives and tells us what he thinks about the way that we are currently living. And when that happens, do we welcome that? Do we rebel against that? Do we question that? That's really what's on the table for us this morning. Jesus has legitimate authority, divine authority from God. There is nothing that I'm going to say this morning that can change that. 
praise God. And there's nothing that you do this afternoon that will change that either. He has legitimate divine authority. The question is, do you rejoice in that in your life? Do you welcome that? Or this morning, are you in some ways running perhaps from that and running from him? Or are you just trying to wrestle him for that authority? In our series here in the Gospel of Mark, and for many of you who have been uh, working our way through this book, we're now up to chapter 11, almost to chapter 12, and we have seen for 11 chapters how Jesus is on the move. He is active. He's been incredibly active. And so let me ask you this question. As you think about all that you have learned about Jesus, and we have learned a ton about Jesus, what has been the most surprising thing about him, do you think? What maybe in these 11 chapters has, has maybe even shocked you a little bit about Jesus? Some of you might say, well, it, it's got to be his, his off-the-charts compassion for people. And indeed, his compassion is out of this world. It is supernatural. Nobody is more compassionate than Jesus. You might say, you know what's most surprising? Well, the things I've learned about him, it's his, it's his incredible power. I mean, he can heal Sometimes by not even doing anything. Sometimes by a word, sometimes by a touch. It's got to be his miracles or his teaching or now that we've learned his willingness to suffer for sinners. That's what's maybe most remarkable and all of that is certainly true. But I think what's actually most surprising and maybe even shocking about Jesus is his authority. It certainly was for his disciples, and it was for the crowds that were following him. And I think that's why Mark, very early on in his gospel here, he tells us that Jesus has legitimate authority. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and notice, and not as the scribes. So when Jesus speaks... Well, he doesn't speak like all the other teachers. He doesn't speak like all the other rabbis. When Jesus speaks, it's different. He speaks with the authority of God. And so that's why just a few verses later in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, this same crowd, they're, they're amazed. And so they begin to talk amongst themselves. They question themselves, and they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And so Mark is not hesitant. He's not shy to put the authority of Jesus on display right from the very beginning of his gospel here. And so we see then from the very beginning of Mark that Jesus has authority in his victory over satanic temptation. Mark chapter 1 verse 12. Jesus has authority in his proclamation of the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Jesus has authority to call his own disciples. Mark chapter 1 verse 16. Continue on through the book of Mark. Jesus has authority over demons. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to command the winds and the waves. They obey him. What kind of authority is that? Well, it's the authority of God. And more recently in Mark, we've seen the authority of Jesus to, in his claim that, in fact, he is worth leaving everything for, giving up everything for him, Mark chapter 10. Jesus has the authority to accept the divine title, Son of David. And last week we saw how Jesus has the authority to cleanse the temple, to teach about faith and forgiveness and prayer. And so I think you're getting the point here. 
from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he's putting forth this Jesus to say, this is the one you want to listen to. Jesus has divine authority. And some loved him for that. Many hated him for that. And others challenged him, and still others questioned him. Here's really the, the point, if you will, of this interaction, this confrontation this morning. This is actually the first of seven such confrontations that we're going to be looking at here in the next couple of weeks. So there's conflict is the point. But here's the point of this. You will not truly confess Jesus as Lord until you are actually willing to bow to his authority as king and as your savior. So let me say that one more time. You will not truly confess Jesus as Lord until you're actually willing to bend the knee to him, to bow to him as your authority, savior and king. Now we meet a group of people here who refuse to do that in our text here in Mark 11. Their intent, in fact, was to challenge the authority of Jesus and in so challenging his authority to discredit him, uh, to prove him to be a fraud. Again, the context, I'll read verses 27 and 28. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Again, remember in chapters 11 through 16 here, we are in the last week of the life of Jesus. This is the last act of Jesus' life. And especially in chapters 11, 12, and 13, Mark zooms in on the, the activity surrounding the temple. And that's where we find Jesus. He goes right back to the place where he had just overturned the money changers and the tables. And he's immediately accosted by three groups of people. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now these three people composed a larger group. They were known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin occupied the highest level of power under Rome. Remember, the Jews existed under Roman occupation. And under Rome, the Romans were only interested in two things, peace and taxes. And so if they got both of those things, they really didn't care what was going on, and they gave a lot of freedom and liberty and authority to the Jewish ruling council, to the Sanhedrin here. So the Sanhedrin, think of it a little bit like the Supreme Court, except much broader and much more power. So the, the Sanhedrin consisted of 71 individuals. These were the ruling elites, the legal elites, the PhDs, the business tycoons, the cultural elites, all in one group. And so their power and authority was widespread. They say things, people do it. They say jump, people say, how high would you like me to jump? They had also heard then of this troublemaker Jesus for three years. Some of them had probably even witnessed some of his miracles. They, they saw his authority in action. And the Sanhedrin also knew that the people, the crowds, were, were amazed at Jesus. The Sanhedrin were not amazed at Jesus they were angry at him because Jesus is pronouncing an end to their power. He's announcing an end to all of their structures, to all of their activities. Remember, the temple was, was the hub that had really held Israel together. And for the Sanhedrin, the temple is their territory. The temple is their home field advantage. The temple is their jurisdiction. 
And yet Jesus is beginning to dismantle that. And even more, Jesus is claiming that he actually has the authority to do that. And so they raise an interesting question. Verse 28, uh, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? Now that these things that the Sanhedrin are referring to are really, are really the activities of the immediate day preceding. Remember, the day that Jesus walked into the temple like he owned the temple, because he actually does. John records it, he brings out the whip, he drives out the animals, he barricades the place. Sanhedrin is saying, Jesus, what gives you the right to do that? What gives you the right to pull a stunt like that on our turf? Jesus, you don't have the proper credentials. Let me see your badge. You, you don't have ordination papers. You haven't been approved by us. So who gave you the right to walk into our temple, overturn our tables, and disrupt things like you did? That's the question that is posed to Jesus. Now, honesty demands that we understand that that question that the Sanhedrin posed, they're not looking for the truth. They're not honestly searching and seeking. They're not trying to figure out, oh, okay, let me, let me try and get straight. Who is this Jesus? What is he about to do? They're trying to put the pieces together. They're not thinking any of that. But you should know that Jesus has all the time in the world for people like us who do have those questions. We wonder, Jesus, what are you doing? I'm trying to make sense of life. I'm trying to put the pieces together, and the pieces are not fitting Jesus has all the time in the world for people like us. But this is not that. This is a direct attack on Jesus, a direct attack to his ministry and to his mission and identity. The Sanhedrin, they don't care about God. They don't care about God's people. They don't care about God's name. They certainly don't care about God's glory being established on the earth. The Sanhedrin care about one thing, themselves. They care about their power. They care about their ability to uh, maintain their position. They care about not being exposed for the frauds that they actually really are. So they resented the authority that Jesus claimed and they began to rebel against his claim to be the true king. Now we read this and we think, ooh, Sanhedrin, those are bad guys. And they are bad guys. And then we think, well, I'm nothing like them. Well, if we're honest, and we're in church, so we do need to be honest. There's, there's a little or perhaps a lot of the Sanhedrin in every one of our hearts. If you have ever sinned, even just once, just once, then you also struggle with authority, don't you? We all have some source of authority in our lives. There's someone or something that rules us, something that is guiding us, something that drives us, and for most of us, like the Sanhedrin here, well, by default, it's actually us. It's ourselves. And we're not really interested in surrendering that kind of rule willingly, giving it to someone else. So the problem is, is not that Jesus has legitimate divine authority. He does. The problem is we don't like that he does. So the problem is actually with us. It's internal. It's in our hearts. Because if I really accept that Jesus is who he said he is, he's the son of God, he's the true king, he's the Messiah who gave up his life on the cross, was raised to new life, then his claim 
on my life, his claim on your life is total. It's absolute. And what it means then is that if I'm going to follow Jesus, then my life can actually never be the same. It can actually never stay the same. And that is the challenge and maybe even the problem for many of us in this room. At root, we actually, we actually kind of like our lives far too much as they presently are. And so we may, not, we may not see a great need to turn, to change, to repent, to have Jesus really work in our hearts. Church, you will not truly confess Jesus as Lord until you are actually willing to bow to his authority as your Savior and as your King. Sanhedrin, see their power eroding, it's slipping away, and so this confrontation with Jesus is really a last-ditch effort to discredit him and to make him look silly. Now, on a practical note, it's not a good idea to try to make Jesus look silly. It's really not a great idea to get into a bait with Jesus, to start to argue with him, because you know what's going to happen. You know where that road goes, don't you? You're going to lose. Every time, Jesus doesn't lose debates with people. He gets into argument. He, he's going to win. So it's just something for your consideration next time you really want to argue with him. But the Sanhedrin here are about to be taken to school by Jesus. Verses 29 through 33. Jesus said to them, I'm going to ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now I think you read that, and don't you just think, Okay, Jesus, you're just dodging the question there. You're kind of being evasive here. Come on, what's up with that? But in fact, Jesus is not dodging any question. He's not being evasive at all. You know what he's doing? He's being wise. He, he's actually being God. Because he provides us here with a really great example of how to deal with scoffers who are really not interested in the truth. They're really only interested in advancing or winning an argument and furthering their agenda. I mean, Jesus, think about this, he could have said, hey guys, Sanhedrin, 71 of you, have a seat. That's a great question. So let me, let me just take you back to Genesis chapter 3. Seat of the woman, that's me. David's son, all salvation history, you know, has been pointing to me. I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. He could, have, he could have taught for 37 days straight. And it wouldn't have made any difference. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows their motivation. It's not a matter of evidence for these guys, the Sanhedrin. It's their hard and rebellious and stiff-necked hearts. So sometimes you don't actually have to answer every question or every objection that is presented to you. Jesus, in fact, shows us that. A couple chapters later in Mark chapter 14, the very last hours of his earthly life, Jesus is thrown into the council where he is unjustly accused and falsely maligned and rejected. And the high priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? But he remained silent. And then a few verses later, verse 61, 
The high priest asks a different question. It's much more pointed, much more central to the ministry and the mission of Jesus. And isn't it interesting? The question is, are you the Christ, the Son, Son of the blessed? And Jesus answers. And he says, I am. And then he basically says, you should buckle your seatbelt. I mean, Jesus always knows what to say. He always knows when to say it. He always knows how much or how little to say. But the irony here is that the Sanhedrin actually think that they're in control. They actually think that they've got Jesus right where they want him. They think they're the smartest. They think they're the brightest. They think they're so advanced in their thinking. They think this is a good day to be part of the Sanhedrin. And Jesus is about to show them that their day's about to turn. Because he answers their question with a far better question, which was a very typical debating strategy at the time for these rabbis. But Jesus here, in his reference to John the Baptist, Jesus is not looking just to win an argument. That's not, that's not his mission. No, in fact, Jesus is answering their question by really trying to get them to see their own motives, to see their own hearts with some degree of accuracy. He's trying to reveal their motives. And so in referring to John's baptism, Jesus here is really speaking about John's entire ministry, his life, which we learned, right, all the way back in Mark chapter 1. John's, John the Baptist, his whole mission, remember, was to, to preach a message of repentance. His ministry was a pointer. He was the trailblazer. He was the messenger to make way Make room for the Messiah. So John came bounding onto the scene, preaching a message of repentance. Repent and believe to all those who would acknowledge that Jesus is, in fact, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And remember when John baptized Jesus. Remember what happened. It's an incredible scene. The sky opened up. The Spirit of God came down. And a voice from heaven, the voice of the Heavenly Father, came down and said, This is my beloved Son, that is the eternal affirmation, approval of God the Father to Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying here to the Sanhedrin is that if you know what to think about John, then you'll know what to think about me because, you know, I'm tied up with that guy. So if John was a prophet from God with the very authority of God as a messenger of God, well, how much more authority is there in the one to whom John actually points to? the whole point of his ministry. And it's like, I think at that point, Jesus is saying like, it's me. You're not getting it yet. So to accept John's message as from God was in fact to accept Jesus as being from God. And so if the Sanhedrin accept John's authority, well, they also have to accept the authority of Jesus as being even greater than John's. So it really is a package deal. You can't take John without Jesus, and if you want to throw away Jesus, you've got to throw away John. So the bottom line, the Sanhedrin are in a little bit of a pickle here. What do you do? I mean, to answer truthfully, well, that would be to expose their own hearts and their murderous intentions, that they want to get rid of Jesus. So they're not going to do that. But then if they denied that John's ministry was actually from God, that he actually was a prophet, or if they could just say, well, no, John was just some nutty guy. I mean, look at him. The guy ate locusts. He looked like 
well, he looked weird. But if they were to deny that they came from God, well, but all the people loved John. And in fact, in the first century, John was universally attested as being a prophet from God. Everybody thought that. And they're saying, if we say that, uh, then all the people are going to be really upset at us, and that's going to make our lives a lot harder. So they choose to lie. Rather than submit to the authority of Jesus, they lie and they say, hmm, we don't know. Now, what they really mean by that is we don't want to know. We are unwilling to know. If you want to put a positive spin on that, that's really not, it's really hard to put a positive spin on that, but I'm going to try. Here's the positive spin. Jesus, we just want to keep an open mind. Church, what's the point of an open mind if everything falls out? So they have no answer, so Jesus doesn't answer them. So the Sanhedrin, is, is we, we get a picture of these guys, they're actually a whole lot like the, the postmodern skeptic or the critic that is, well, we, we know people like this. They're kind of like the person who says, I'm on a journey, I just want to answer a lot of questions. I'm going to listen to this podcast, I'm going to listen to this podcast, but I'm not really interested in the truth. I don't really want to land anywhere, but I just want to get a, as much information as I can, and then maybe some point, potentially, well, I'll just keep reading more information. So I just want to ask a lot of questions, but I don't really want to make any decision. I'm just going to kind of sit on the fence. I'm going to be ambiguous, kind of hedge my bets, and yes, when confronted with the truth, and even if it's right in front of my face, well, I'll say, no comment. No comment. Friend, if you are unwilling to commit to a position on Jesus, like the Sanhedrin, then Jesus will not be committed to you. Now, if you come to him with honest questions, sincere concerns, doubts, with a real willingness to, to have Jesus reveal himself and his authority to you, he will answer you. He has all the time in the world and the patience in the world for you and for me. But if you come to him on your terms, really want him to give some justification for you to keep living the way you're living, be in charge of your life and your self-rule, he's not going to do it. He's never going to do that. You'll never truly confess Jesus as Lord until you're willing to bow to his authority as your true Savior and as your King. So what does this mean? Like, Why is this story even in here for us today? Let me give you three points of application as we close here so that this actually lands on us, lands on our hearts. Here's the first. And, and hopefully what is obvious at this point Jesus is God, and we are not. Jesus is God, and you and I are not. He's sinless, we're not. He's king, we are disciples of the king. Now, that truth that Jesus is God and we are not, that's a foundational truth. It's kind of Christianity 101. But that is absolutely comforting, but in another way, it could absolutely be terrifying. That Jesus is God, that is a tremendous comfort if you actually know him to be your God and to be your Savior. 
If you know him by faith in Christ, then you know that you have 24-7 access to the God of the universe, that your heart is engaged with his. And that kind of heart engagement with the one true God, that's what dispels fears. That's what dispels worry. That's what dispels anxiety. To know that Jesus is God and that he is always on his throne, he is always leading you and directing you and caring for you and acting on your behalf to do you good, to bless you because he loves you. In fact, he loves you probably more than you often think and probably more than you feel. That's why we Christians have, we just have far better reasons for the certainty of our hope even when things around us look hopeless. We're the most blessed people on the planet because we know this one true God. And in fact, the more that we rightly learn to fear King Jesus, fear meaning honor him and respect him and worship him, to see Jesus and all his authority and power, well, then the more we actually rightly live. John Newton said it well, we sing it. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Again, fear God, see him rightly. And grace did what? My fears relieved. So Jesus is God, which means that he actually has authority to save. Because he's God, he has the authority to rescue you. He has the authority to redeem you. He has the authority to make a way when you don't see any way. And that alone can change a life. Now, if you do not know Jesus as God then in fact you have every reason to be terrified. Because not only does Jesus have authority to save because he is Lord, but because he is Lord, he also has the authority to condemn. He has divine authority to say condemned, and he has divine authority to say there is now therefore no condemnation. A few years ago I had the uh, it was really a privilege. I had the opportunity to get to know a guy. We happened to be working out at the same time, and we got to know each other, and he happened to be Muslim. And uh, just as an aside, as you, as you seek to share the good news of the gospel and to share your faith, sometimes we can approach situations like that, and we feel like, okay, I got a window here. I want to try and stuff every bit of good knowledge into this guy's heart and hope that something sticks. That's not an effective evangelism strategy. You know what's far better and actually far more biblical? Listen, ask questions, care about the person, not winning an argument, not proving them wrong, care about the person behind who's, who's honestly asking those sorts of questions. So that probably takes a little bit more time, doesn't it? Well, hang in there, trust the Lord, see what he's going to do. So it was really delightful uh, friendship that we struck up. He was happy to talk about his Muslim faith, and he was happy to answer the questions that I had for him. And and he asked me questions, and, you know, he, he had no problem checking off many of the boxes that you and I would check off. Yeah, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. Yeah, he was a moral man. Yep, prophet of God. Yep, miracle worker. Yep, he can get behind all that. The problem for him was in considering the authority of Jesus, that Jesus is God, that he has the authority of God that he has the very authority of God to forgive sins, that he has the authority of God to die on a cross and be raised to new life. It was an issue of authority. 
and he couldn't get beyond that. So if you do not recognize and submit to the divine authority of Jesus Christ, you're never going to receive the benefits and the blessings of salvation. And perhaps you're here and you think, well, where did where's Jesus get off saying he has all that authority? I mean, how do I know that? Where is that? And I would say to you, have you so quickly forgotten about Easter? A couple weeks ago, Jesus died, was buried, seemed hopeless. And then what happened? God raised him from the death, defeating sin, death, and Satan. He's alive. And so that alive Jesus, in having defeated sin, death, and Satan, then says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if I could choose one person in all the world to have all authority, I would pick Jesus. I would not pick a president. I would not pick a prime minister. I would not pick a business tycoon or a head of state. I wouldn't pick any of you. And you wouldn't pick me either. Of course not. Think of what would happen if Jesus said to you, all authority I give to you. That's bad news for the entire global community. I'm so glad that Jesus and only Jesus has absolute authority. You know why? Because nobody's kinder than Jesus. Nobody's stronger than Jesus. Nobody's more powerful than Jesus. Nobody's more merciful than Jesus. Nobody's more loving than Jesus. Nobody's more holy than Jesus. Nobody's more godlike than Jesus because he is God and we are not. So you're not going to make much progress in your Christian life without this foundational truth. Here's the second thing. Because Jesus has all authority, you ought to believe everything that is in this book. Everything that is in the Bible, every last word. The authority of Jesus demands that our view of Scripture, in fact, must be the same as his. And so Jesus, he didn't run roughshod over the Old Testament. He didn't trample on the Old Testament. He didn't say, ooh, bad God, I'm way different. I'm the new and improved God. Not at all. He believed every last word of the Old Testament. He came to fulfill that. And the New Testament scriptures are, in fact, the inspired record of everything about Jesus and his ministry. So if you believe that Jesus actually has divine authority, then you will submit to every last word that you read here in this Bible, even if that means your family thinks you're a nut, especially when you may lose a job or your reputation is slandered in the community, especially and even when the prevailing cultural winds are blowing hard in our face, and they are. As you know, we are, we are living in a time that we are reimagining and re-envisioning and redefining some of the basic building blocks of life. And so sometimes we kind of scratch our heads like, how did we get here? That's a legitimate question. Sometimes the answer is not so easy. But you understand, and, and I'm, I'm speaking to all of us here, but, but particularly junior hires, high schoolers, this stuff is being debated, and you can hear all sorts of things about gender and about 
identity and about and, and the abortion and when does life. Do you know that the Bible is actually clear on all of those things? It really is. And so there are answers. And if you don't know where to look for those answers, there are people here who would love to help you find those answers. And that's true for every last one of us. But the point is we cannot and dare not use the Word of God as a diving board with which we just take a few bounces and jump off into every kind of aberrant doctrine that we like. That's what whole denominations are doing. That's what churches are doing. We see that all over the place. May that never be here. So we submit to the authority of Scripture, which means that we are the ones that need to change. We're the ones that have to really do business with the Lord. It's the only sane way to live. Third, examine your own heart. So be honest. Be honest with where you're at today. Is there evidence, growing evidence, of submission to the authority of Jesus in the, in the practical details, the nitty-gritty of your life? And you might think of this last week of your life, and look, as you look back on this last week and think, oh, I got so many ways to grow. That's okay. That's not a deal breaker. Jesus knows that. You're not surprising him. He wants to give you grace. He wants to give you resurrection power that you can grow and change as, as you painfully bend the knee to him. Frankly, I think that's kind of the only way it happens. Through pain, we bend the knee. But that is even God's grace to get us to that point. If you, uh, guys, if you are constantly a jerk to your wife, but, but you have all the answers in your discipleship group and everybody looks to you as being the answer man, don't think for a moment that you have bowed to the authority of Jesus. You haven't. So search your heart. Examine your motives. And this idea of examining our heart, just being honest before the Lord, that's not something we just do on Sundays, one day a week, check the box, move on. Why, you might ask? Because we're constantly changing. We're always changing and we're being changed either by the world, we're discipled by the world, or we are discipled by, in fact, the Word made flesh, Jesus himself. So disciples are men and women, boys and girls, who more and more are learning to give evidence of submission to the authority of Jesus in their lives. Jesus actually does have authority over every last area of our lives. Our families, our church, our abilities, your gifts, your leisure activities, your money, everything. It does a little good to call him Lord if we're not also doing what he commands, Luke chapter 6, verse 46. You will not truly confess Jesus as Lord until you're actually willing to bend the knee, to bow to his authority as Savior and King. Jesus has legitimate authority, the very authority of God. And like I said, nothing that I say is going to change that, and nothing you do will change that. Jesus will continue to have the very authority of God. The only question is whether you're going to love him for that, you're going to worship him for that, you're going to more and more learn to rejoice in that authority in your life, or are you going to wrestle him, maybe even reject him, 
and constantly question it. Let's pray.